Good morning to you all. My name is uh, Daniel Ying, and I bring you greetings from Redeemer Montclair, where I pastor. Uh, It's a great privilege to be here with you to uh, open God's Word. If you're not aware, this morning is uh, part of a pulpit swap. Um, Your pastor, Peter, is is, uh, preaching this morning at at, uh, Redeemer Montclair, and I'm here. And uh, when Peter proposed the idea a couple months ago, um, I was very receptive to the idea because of the relationship between our churches. I think very much we're sister churches and uh, we're all, always grateful to you all who took a risk um, to plant Redeemer Montclair a number of years ago at a very critical point in your own history. I think it was a risk for you to do that, and we're very grateful for that. So I'm, I'm always thankful to, to be here for that reason, and because of my friendship with Peter. I, I, I've been here in, this, uh, in New Jersey for about five years for this round of ministry, and uh, Peter's been nothing but helpful and a, a, a source of pastoral wisdom and support. So I'm, I'm grateful um, for all those things. And then I know for our congregation, I, I consider it a real value for our congregation down in Montclair to hear from other voices in the body of Christ. And so I'm glad Peter there is there preaching, and I trust that it'll be a benefit for me to be here uh, this morning. Would you turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, uh, to the verses that I'd like to spend uh, some time in this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Let me uh, read for you what uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Here's what he says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as we just sung moments ago, speak, O Lord, and renew our hearts. We pray that you would do that now through your word. Lord, you know every heart in this room and you know the words we need to hear. We pray that you'd speak those words and that our hearts would be receptive. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know this is kind of a one-off sermon for you, so let me just say a few words why I chose this particular passage. One reason is because we've spent time in Ephesians up at Redeemer Montclair earlier this year. We are in the midst of a uh, building project, and I know you guys know something about that. We are going before the zoning board this the end of the summer to get approval for our, uh, for our project, Lord willing, so you can pray for that. I, I know you just recently acquired a new building, so you know some, uh, something about the bumps and turns and twists of this process. So you can pray for us. And as part of this process, we are aware that uh, we not only need a new facility, we need, we need strengthening and renewal as a church. And so that's why we spent time in um, Ephesians, which is all about the church. And so I'm familiar with this uh, letter. But then also I chose this particular passage because Peter told me you're spending time in Ecclesiastes this summer, which is a book about wisdom. And this passage is all about wisdom, and I hope there might be some resonance Unbeknownst to me, but for you, uh, between you and the Lord um, and his word, uh, between what we talk about this morning and what you've been hearing all summer long. Proverbs, which we heard uh, from just a moment ago, the quintessential book on wisdom, says this. 
Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. In other words, wisdom is more valuable than a big bank account, a luxury car, or a nice house. The writer of Proverbs says, nothing you, you desire can compare with her, which is a pretty bold claim because we desire some pretty big things. And the writer says, wisdom is supreme, better than all those things. And our passage is about walking in the way of wisdom. It's interesting, these, these verses that I just read could easily have been found in the context of Proverbs, the book of, of wisdom. Um, and, and yet it's here in the second half of Ephesians. And it picks up this theme, one of the main verbs in the second half of Ephesians is this verb walk, which refers to how we live. And so Paul has already said, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk in the way of love. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. Walk as children of light. And then here in our verses, walk in the way of wisdom. Look at verse 15. Be careful then how you live. Literally, that's, that's the Hebrew word for walk. Be careful how you live or walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so here's what God is calling us to do this morning. God is calling us to walk in the way of wisdom. Before we get into these verses, let me just briefly talk about what biblical wisdom is, just so we have some clarity and we're on the same page here. And let me start by talking about what, what biblical wisdom is not. Uh, biblical wisdom is not your IQ or intelligence. I mean, think of the mad professor who is like brilliant off the charts, but then needs help keeping a schedule. You know, brilliant, really intelligent, and yet not all that wise. Biblical wisdom is not IQ, it's not intelligence, and it's also not esoteric philosophy. So, so for example, Proverbs, the, the classic book on bibl- biblical wisdom, it is not esoteric philosophy. It has to do with things like how we raise our children how much we eat, how much we sleep, uh, our relationship with our parents, self-control issues, appetite issues. In other words, it, it's about the intersection of, of, of life, you know, the, the struggles and the issues that we all struggle with, the pa- practical issues of daily life. Uh, biblical wisdom is not esoteric philosophy, so then what is it? An Old Testament professor I uh, once had defined it this way. Um, wisdom has to do with skill in living. Interestingly, the Hebrew word that is used for wisdom in, is used in reference to the practical arts and skills. So Bezalel, who designed and constructed the tabernacle, for example, is described in this way. God says, I have filled him with the spirit of God with skill, which is a word for wisdom, ability, knowledge in all kinds of crafts. So wisdom, when it's applied to building things, has to do with skill and in designing and building things. And so wisdom, when it's applied to life, has to do with skill in living life. G.I. Packard likens biblical wisdom to learning how to drive. And since I was born and raised in the Midwest, I know, I, I know uh, roads in New Jersey are not like the other part, roads in the rest of the uh, country. Y- you know, it, it takes skill to drive in New Jersey. You know, you, you have to adjust to the other drivers. Uh, you have to get used to reading very confusing, uh, confusing signage and, and jug handles. Um, you know it's bad when the GPS gets lost. And when we moved here five years ago and I was driving someplace I hadn't uh, been before, the GPS got totally lost and I was totally lost. I mean, you know, you know it's bad. You know, you, you have to learn to make quick decisions or what's going to happen, right? Uh, you're going to get a horn in, the, in your rear. Um, you have to learn to merge on the high-speed traffic from a dead stop. 
There is a reason why our car insurance moving from Chicago doubled moving to New Jersey, because they know there's a higher probability driving New Jersey of accidents. It takes skill to drive in New Jersey. And the Bible says it takes skill to live life. Verse 15, be careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. It is therefore possible to live foolishly or unwisely, to make wrong turns and mistakes in the way that we live. And so God here is calling us to live in the way of wisdom, to walk in the way of wisdom. What does that mean? I think Paul unfolds that in these verses, and there are uh, clearly three imperatives in these verses that have to do with these areas. How we use our time, how we make decisions, and how we become wise. That's what I'd like to talk about with you this morning. I I think there's some progression here. How we use our time is based on how we make our decisions, and how we make our decisions is based on how we become wise. So here's the first point I want to think about. How we use our time. Look at verse 15. Paul calls us to live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Literally, you see, redeeming the time. You looked at the original Greek, that's, that's, those are the words, redeeming the time. And the word that Paul uses for time, interestingly, is not the, the generic Greek word for time, chronos. It's the, it's the Greek word kairos, which refers in particular to an opportunity. So time here is not merely the passing of, of time, the marking of life's passage, but the passing of opportunities. And, and I think we can begin to build a theology of time with this understanding. See, time in the Bible's view is not just a way to mark the passage of our, of our lives, but time is a gift from God. Time is God-given opportunities, and we're called to redeem it. That is, this word is, is from the commercial realm, to, to buy something, to buy up something. That's what you do when you redeem something. You buy it up, and so we're called to buy up time like we buy up a bargain that's about to disappear. People all the time say time is money, and that's a fairly utilitarian view of, of time. The biblical view of time, I would suggest, is time is opportunity that can be used wisely or unwisely. And therefore, we're called to be intentional about the way that we use our time. You see, in the same way that you would carefully consider, before you make a big purchase, right? We, we think about all the angles and we, we consider carefully in the same way. We should think about the way that we use our time. Why? Paul says because the days are evil. You see, we don't live in a neutral age. We live in an age where there's a prevalence of moral evil. Th- that is to say there, there is great pressure and temptation to misuse our time and our opportunities. Let me put it this way. If there's one good way to spend our time, there are at the same, very same moment 10 bad ways to use our, our time. And, and unless we're proactive and intentional about the way that we use our time, the present evil age will make the decision for us. On May 20th, 2000, John Piper spoke to 40,000 college students as part of the Passion Conference. And on this particular occasion... He said to these college students, three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason was over 80, single all her life, a nurse. She poured out her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places of the world. Laura Edwards, 
a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnered up with Ruby. She also was pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon when the brakes gave way. And over a cliff they went, and they were dead instantly. And he said, I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, a whole life devoted to one thing, Jesus Christ and magnifying him among the poor and the sick and the hardest of places. Is this a tragedy? And on that day, to 40,000 college students, he said, it is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. And he pulled out a page from Reader's Digest and read this. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Piper said, that's a tragedy. When you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did, and you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And look at my boat. To those college students that day, John Piper said, don't waste your life. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with shells and boats. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is, is, to be, if it is received with thanksgiving. And in that context, Paul actually says an ascetic way of life can actually be a way of abandoning the faith. And on the other hand, enjoying God's good gifts, shells and boats and beaches, can be the most spiritual thing we do. Because in that, in that enjoyment, we're acknowledging the fact that God has created all things. And one of the ways you acknowledge that is you richly enjoy his gifts. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's gifts, and we, we do that a lot this, in the summer. But here's the point. In enjoyment of God's good gifts, we're not to forget God himself. I think John Piper is saying we waste our lives if we only live for shells and boats and not for God. Here's the difference between wisdom and folly. It's the difference between being a time redeemer and a time waster. Psalm 90 says, Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are, bi- are, are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Teach us, therefore, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Very seasoned uh, dad told me a few years ago, he put it this way. He says, you know, we have 18 summers with our kids. I don't know about you, that, that's a very finite number, and I'm down to less than, less than four, probably with my oldest daughter. And, and I know it's the boomerang generation, so they keep, you know, you send them out and they keep coming back, and, and yet it's still, it's still a finite number. We have a limited time with our children, those of you, of you who are parents. God calls us to live in the way of wisdom, and that has to do with how we use our time. That, in turn, depends on how we make Decisions. We're, we're always making decisions about how we use our, our time. And so secondly, how do we make our decisions? Look then at verse 17. Paul says, do not, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And here again, I think Paul is um, repeating this antithesis between foolishness and wisdom. You see, there, there's two classic ways in biblical wisdom. There, there's a way of the fool and, and the way of, of wisdom. And here the two ways are, on the one hand, do not be foolish, but on the other hand, understand what the Lord's will is, which I think has to do with the area of of making decisions. Now, those of you who are are Christians, 
not too long, once you become a Christian, that you begin to ask this question, you know, how, how do I please God? What, what is his will for me in life? And so we ask this very specifically. You know, what is God's desire for where I go to school? Or, or what is God's will and desire for me where I work or whom I marry? We have all these, these questions around guidance. Like, how do, how do I get guidance from God? For his doctoral dissertation at Westminster Seminary, James Petty read all the Christian books he could find on Christian guidance. And at that time, it was 35 of them. He read them, and here's what he distilled. He found that there are three general ways that, that Christians find guidance from God. And number one, he calls the traditional view, which says this. God has a specific and detailed plan for each Christian's life, and he reveals it to you when you carefully interpret circumstances and, and promptings and, and uh, inner voices, and you, you sense this inner peace. That's what he calls the traditional view of getting God's guidance. The second view, he says, he calls it the traditional charismatic view, which is similar to the traditional view in that God has a specific plan, for your life, only he reveals it to you by directly speaking to you through prophecy or inaudible or audible voices or words of knowledge, say. So that's, that's the second view, a traditional charismatic view. The third view, he says, is what he calls the wisdom view. That is to say God has a specific plan in our lives. I mean, he, he is sovereign over all the details of life, and yet, this view says, God doesn't reveal it to us specifically. God doesn't guide us by revealing specific plans, but by making us wise. So therefore, we don't need to try to read clues. We, we, don't, need, we don't follow impressions. We don't wait for liver shivers or prophetic words. We, we need wisdom to apply God's word to our lives. So, so here's the example that he uses to, to again, explain these views. So, so say you're, you're called to house at your parents' house, and your parents are, are going on a three-month uh, trip to, uh, overseas, and, and you're housing for them. And they've called you to do certain house projects for them while they're gone, but they haven't told you what they are. So how do you figure out what you're, you're called to do? The first view would say, well, you need to look for clues. Your, your parents might have left you know, certain tools or certain materials around the house, and so you need to like, look very carefully and, and discern. Look at the circumstances, look at the clues, and, and you might be able to figure out what your parents want you to do. That, that would be the first view. A second view would say, you know, don't worry, just wait for the phone call. You know, your, your parents will call you and tell you directly and verbally exactly what they want you to do, and you just need to wait for the phone call. That would be the second view. The third view would say, you know, your parents um, brought you up for all these years, and over the years they've taught you what needs to be done in a house. They, they've taught you to be wise, and so while they're, they're gone, they trust you. They trust all that you've, they, they've taught you, that, that you know what needs to be done, and you, you use the wisdom that they've, they've taught you to decide which projects need to be done and when and, and how. That's the third view. And when Paul says in verse 17, understand what the Lord's will is, I think he is pointing to the wisdom view. See, oftentimes when we hear these words, the Lord's will, we immediately jump to and think about God's will for my personal life and my personal circumstances. But here in Ephesians 
In the context of Ephesians, God's will has to do with his redemptive purposes in the world. So, for example, Ephesians uh, 1.9 says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, here's God's will. He's made it known to us to unite all things under Christ. That's his redemptive will that he's working out. The the, the parallel verse in Colossians says, let let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's God's will for us. God has made known his will to us. Notice, he doesn't say to us, know God's will, but understand the Lord's will. That is to say, comprehend God's will. Discern the implications of it. Appropriate it to your life circumstances. Learn to understand your story in light of God's redemptive story and how he's writing it in history. Learn to apply what God has already revealed in Scripture to your life. Very similar to Romans 12, too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think it's diametrically opposed to our culture. Our, our culture, the wisdom of this culture says, you don't have to orient yourselves to any kind of outside reality. In fact, you, you make up your own reality. You don't have to look to anyone else to form your identity. You have to look within you know, look to your own feelings, look to your own attractions, look to your own affinities, and that's, that's who you are. You can be whoever you want. You don't have to worry about any external uh, restraints or, or realities. And, and that's in direct opposition to what the ancients said. The ancients says, said there, there is an external reality outside of us, and wisdom, you see, is aligning ourselves with that external reality. It's like the law of gravity. Whether you like or not, the law of gravity is true. And if you flout the law of gravity and you say, well, I don't care about the law of gravity. I'm going to break the law of gravity and you're going to jump off a building. The law of gravity will break you. In the same way, God created and structured this world in a particular way. And there are laws that he establishes for how our world ought to, to work. And if you flout that and you say, I'm just going to break God's laws. I don't care. They eventually will break you. See, wisdom is aligning ourselves with the reality that God has established. And this is wisdom. Wisdom is understanding the Lord's will and aligning your life accordingly. Let me illustrate it this way. Captain of a warship is piloting a ship through foggy waters, and as he strains his eyes ahead through the fog, he sees a bright light straight ahead, and he quickly radios the oncoming vessel. And he says, this is Captain Smith. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. But the light does not move. And in fact, he hears a voice come back over the radio, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The captain of the ship is annoyed by the impudence, and he radios again. This is the captain of a U.S. naval ship. I say again, divert your course. But the light still doesn't move. And a voice comes back over the radio. No, I say again, divert your course. And now the captain's anger is beginning to boil over, and he says on the radio, this is the aircraft carrier Enterprise. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. To which the voice on the radio responds, this is a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) What is wisdom for that captain? 
I suggest to you that wisdom for that captain is diverting his course based on external reality. So you can say all you want, you know, I don't care about reality. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And you will find like this captain that your life breaks on the rocks of truth. There there is objective truth because there's a maker. There's a a creator. And, And you see, wisdom, therefore, is aligning yourself with the Lord's will. Aligning yourself with his will as revealed in Scripture. This, my friends, I think has to do with renewing our, our minds, what we, we, we sang about it. It's meditating on Scripture and, and God's truth and his will so much that it begins to, to seep into your life and your decision-making so that you can apply it to your life. But, but I'll be honest, I think this process itself requires wisdom. And, and let me give you one of the most famous examples. Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be just like him. It's Proverbs 26, 4. And he's like, that's all well and good until you read the very next verse. Proverbs 26, 5 doesn't say, do not answer a fool. It says in the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. And you say, well, wait a second, which one is it? And it's both. It depends on your circumstance. Both are true. Both are wise. It depends on your circumstance, and it takes wisdom to know how to apply God's word to your life. And so lastly, how then do we become wise? See, God does not leave us alone walking in this way of wisdom. Look at verse 18. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. See, Paul is contrasting, again, the way of the fool and the way of the wise. On the one hand, he says, don't get drunk on wine. On the other hand, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't think that the Ephesians so much had a problem with drunkenness. I think what Paul is doing here is he's characterizing the general Gentile way of life around getting drunk, which leads to a life of debauchery, literally an excessive and out-of-control indulgence. On the other hand, the way of wisdom is being filled by the Spirit, which leads to a life of joy and thanksgiving and humility. If you look at verses 19 and 20, they're filled with five participles that flow from this command to be filled by the Spirit. They they play out. What does it look like to be filled by the Spirit? What's the outcome of it? What what is the evidence of it? Being filled by the Spirit means we're joyful people. Verse 19 is a picture of corporate worship. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord corporate worship. We, we're, we're joyful people. The worship leader doesn't need to say, you know, people. We, we need to rejoice. You'll, you'll come ready to do that because you come with a song in your heart if you're filled by the Spirit. We're thankful people. Verse 20, we're always giving thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is a foundational attitude for, for Christians is this fundamental stance of, of thankfulness before God. And then we're also Humble people, verse 21, which the NIV separates as part of the next passage, but really it's part of this passage. It's not a separate command, it's a participle. If we're filled by the Spirit, here's another evidence of that. We submit ourselves. We're submitting ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, here's the choice that Paul sets before us. Do you want to be a person of uncontrollable appetites? Or do you want to be a wise, joyful, thankful, and humble person? I think everyone in this room, I I think, would say, well, of course the latter. 
then Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Which is an imperative. I mean, there's something for us to do. But it's a passive imperative. We, we don't fill ourselves. We are filled by the Spirit. It's a plural imperative. This is not just for, you know, pastoral staff or really experienced Christians or people in ministry. This is for everyone, for all Christians. Be filled, plural. Everyone, all of you, be filled with the Spirit. And it is a present tense imperative. It's an ongoing reality. It's not a one-time experience. Go on being filled by, by the Spirit. Keep on being filled by the Spirit. W- what does that mean? Well, when someone's filled by something, it, it means that their life is characterized by, controlled by that thing. So, so for example, you know, if, if someone says her life is filled with family, we know exactly what that means. If someone says, well, his life is filled with work, we know, we know exactly what that means. Or, you know, her life is filled with sports, say. We, we know exactly what that means. In the same way, being filled by the Spirit means that your life is increasingly characterized and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's the same reality, I think, of, of being filled by Christ, having Christ dwell in our hearts Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. I pray that of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through a spirit in your inner being so that, get this, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Being filled by the Spirit is the same thing as Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Again, the parallel verse to this in Colossians is let the the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. This is the way then we become wise. You see, Christianity is not a way of life to be filled, to be lived on our own effort. It's to, to be lived with supernatural help. We're filled by the Holy Spirit to increasing degrees. Christ dwells in our hearts more and more, and this is a way that we become wise. Christ dwells in our hearts more and more such that, that Christ, who is the wisdom of God, fills us with wisdom. So, for example, there, there are moments in my family where there's a, there's a big decision, and my wife, Tina, will say to my kids, you know, well, let, let's wait and see what Dad has to say. And because I have teenagers under the roof, we quite often get to that, and I roll, and the words, we already know what Dad's going to say. You know, why, why do my teens say that? Be, because they've lived with me for years, and they, they know my heart. They know what I'm going to say in, in various situations. And here's the thing. When, when you live with the Spirit, when He fills you, when Christ dwells in you, you know what He's going to say. Well, you know what they're going to say. Here's how we become wise. It's being filled with the Spirit. It's being filled with Christ. I trust you've seen the re-release of uh, Beauty and the Beast with uh, Emma Watson in the title role, and, and you know the story, so there's no spoiler alert needed for, for this. Be- because of his unkindness, remember the prince falls under a curse and he's turned into a beast because that's the outward expression of the inward reality. He, he's beastly as a person. And the one thing that will heal him and make him human again is that he must receive the love of another. And that, you remember, comes in the form of, of Belle. This noble beauty who is willing to sacrifice herself to save her own father. And, and because of that, she is, is trapped in the castle of the beast. Instead of living in fear, she begins to see something in the beast. Remember? She sees a glimmer of humanity in the beast. And she actually came, comes to, to love the beast. And it's her love that transforms him into becoming a human again. In fact, her love transforms his whole world. It remakes him and his whole, whole world. And here's the thing. Why, why does that story have such deep hooks in us? 
because it's love that transforms our world. And we all long for that moment when a beauty that we don't deserve comes into our life and loves us. And that noble beauty is an echo of the gospel because Christ is the ultimate noble beauty who is willing to sacrifice himself and love us even though we don't deserve it. And that love, my friends, when you take it in, will transform you and change you and remake you into a wise person and a joyful person and a thankful person and a humble person. How do we become wise? It's by being filled by the Spirit. It's by being indwelt by Christ. Jesus says in John 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit. When you're filled by the Spirit, it's as if rivers of living water are flowing from within you. Do you want that? Do you want rivers of living water to be flowing forth from your life? Christ would say, then come and drink from me. Keep coming to drink from me. And as he indwells your heart, as his word takes over your heart, his wisdom becomes your wisdom. His joy becomes your joy. His thankfulness becomes your thankfulness. His humility becomes your humility. My friends, God is calling us to walk in the way of wisdom. That has to do with how we use our time, how we make our decisions, and how we become wise. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you will become wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to walk in the way of wisdom, and oh, you know the circumstances and decisions we face, and we long for wisdom. Wisdom is supreme. And thank you for showing us the way. We don't have to go out and find it ourselves. We need to be filled by the Spirit. We need to be indwelt by your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that that would happen as we come to drink of Christ, as we spend time with him in your word. Would you allow his wisdom to become our wisdom? For this we pray in Jesus' name.